Chapter six of Diana. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Diana by Susan Warner. Chapter six. Mr. Knowlton's fish. Doubtless they were ready, those two, for the brook and the afternoon. The young officer came at half past three, not in regimentals this time, but in an easy gray undress and straw hat. He came in a wagon, and he brought his fishing rod and carried a basket. Diana had been ready ever since three. They lost no time. They went out into the meadow and struck the brook. Now the brook, during its passage through the valley field, was remarkable for nothing but a rare infirmity of purpose, which would never let it keep one course for many rods together. It twisted and curled about, making many little meadow promontories on one side and the other, hurrying along with a soft, sweet gurgle that sounded fresh, even under the heat of the summer sun. It was a hot afternoon, as Mrs. Starling had said, and the two excursionists were fain to take it gently, and to make as straight a course across the fields as keeping on one side of the brook left possible. They could not cross it. The stream was not large, yet quite too broad for a jump, and not deep, yet deep enough to cover its stony bed and leave no crossing stones. So sometimes along the border of the brook, where a fringe of long grass had been left by the mower's scythes, rank and tangled, sometimes striking across from bend to bend over the meadow, where no kindly trees stood to shade them. The two went, on a hunt, as Mr. Knowlton said, after pretty things. After a mile or more of this walking, the scenery changed. Mown fields, hot and fragrant, were left behind. Almost suddenly they entered the hills, where the brook issued from them, and then they began a slower tracking of its course back among the rocks and woods, of a dell which soon grew close and wild. The sides of the dell became higher, the bed of the stream more steep and rough. The canopy of trees closed in overhead, and showed the blue through only in broken patches. The clothing of the hillsides was elegant and exquisite. Oaks and firs and hemlocks, with slender birches and maples, lining the ravine, and under them a free growth of ferns, and fresh beds of moss, and lovely lichens covered the rocks and dressed the ground. The stream rattled along at the bottom, foaming over the stones and leaping down the rocks, making the still, deep pools where the fish loved to lie, and in its way executing a succession of cascades and tiny waterfalls that wanted no picturesque element except magnitude, and a good imagination can supply that. And how went the afternoon? How goes it with those who have just received a new sense, or found a sudden doubling of that which they had before? Nay, it was a new sense, a new power of perception, able to discern what had eluded all their previous lives. The brook in the meadow had been to Diana's vision, until now, merely running water. Whence had come those delicious amber hues, where it rolled over the stones, and the deep olive shadows, where the water was deeper? She had never seen them before. Now they were pointed out, and seemed to be rich and clear, a sort of dilution of sunlight with a suggestion of sunlight's other riches of possibility. The rank, unmown grass that fringed the stream, Diana had never seen it but as what the scythe had missed. Now she was made to notice what an elegant fringe it was, and how the same sunlight glanced upon its curving stems and blades, and set off the deep brown stream. Diana's own eyes began to be quickened, and her tongue loosed. The lovely outline of the hills that encircled the valley had never looked just so rare and lovely as this afternoon, when she pointed them out to her companion, and he scanned them and nodded in full assent. 
but when they got into the ravine, it was Diana's turn. Mosses and old trees, and sharp turns of the gorge, and fords, where it was necessary to cross the brook and recross on stepping-stones, just lifting them above the water, here black enough. Diana knew all these things, and with secret delight unfolded the knowledge of them to her companion as they went along. And still the bits of blue sky overhead had never seemed so unearthly blue. The drapery of oak and hemlock boughs had never been so graceful and bright. There was a presence in the old gorge that afternoon, which went with them and cleared their eyes from vapor, and their minds from everything, it seemed, but a susceptibility to beauty and delight in its influence. Perhaps the young officer would have said that this presence was embodied in the unconscious eyes and fair, calm brow which went beside him. I think he saw them more distinctly than anything else. Diana did not know it. Somehow she very rarely looked her companion in the face, and yet she knew very well how his face looked, too. So well, perhaps, that she did not need to refresh her memory. So they wandered on, and the fords were pleasant places, where she had to be helped over the stones. Not that Diana needed such help. Her foot was fearless and true. She never had had help there before. Was that what made it so pleasant? Certainly it did seem to her that it was a prettier way of going up the brook than alone and unaided. "'I am not getting much fish at this rate,' said young Knowlton at length, with a light laugh. "'No,' said Diana. "'Why don't you stop and try here? Here looks like a good place. Right in that still, deep spot. I dare say there are trout.' "'What will you do in the meantime, if I stop and fish? "'It will be very stupid for you.' "'For me? Oh, no, I shall sit here and look on. "'It will not be stupid. I will keep still, never fear.' "'I don't want you to keep still. That would be very stupid for me.' "'You can't talk while you are fishing. It would scare the trout, you know.' "'I don't believe it.' "'I have always heard so.' "'I don't believe it will pay,' said Knowlton as he fitted his rod, if I am to purchase trout at the expense of all that. At what? Diana wondered. Suppose we talk very softly, in whispers, he went on laughing. Do you suppose the trout are so observant as to mind it? If you sit here, on this mossy stone, close by me, can't I enjoy two things at once? Diana made no objection to this arrangement. She took the place indicated, full of a breathless kind of pleasure, which she did not stop to analyze and watched in silence the progress of the fishing. In silence, for after Mr. Knowlton's arrangement had been carried into effect, he too subsided into stillness, whether engrossed with the business of his line, or satisfied, or with thoughts otherwise engaged, did not appear. But as presently, and again a large trout, speckled and beautiful, was swung up out of the pool below, the two faces were turned towards each other, and the two pairs of eyes met with a smile of so much sympathy that I rather think the temporary absence of words lost nothing to the growth of the understanding between them. The place where they sat was lovely. Just there the bank was high, overhanging the brook. A projecting rock, brown and green and gray, with lichen and mosses of various kinds, held besides a delicate young silver birch, the roots of which found their way to nourishment somehow through fissures in the rock. Here sat Knowlton, with Diana beside him on a stone just a little behind, while he sat on the brink to cast, or rather drop, his line into the little pool below where the trout were lurking. The opposite side of the stream was but a few yards off, thick with a lovely growth of young wood, with one great hemlock not far above towering up towards the sky. 
The view in that direction went up a vista of the ravine, so wood-fringed on both sides, with the stream leaping and tumbling down a steep rocky bed. Overhead the narrow line of blue sky. Four, whispered Diana, as another spotted trout came up from the pool. I wonder how many there are down there, said Knowlton, as he unhooked the fish. It makes me hungry. Catching the trout? said Diana softly. He nodded. Here comes another. I wish we could make a fire somewhere hereabouts and cook them. Is that a good way? The best in the world, he said, adjusting his fly, and then looking with a smile at her. There is no way that fish taste so good. I used to do that, you see, in the hills round about the academy, and I know all about it. We could make a fire, said Diana, but we have no gridiron here. I had no gridiron there. Couldn't have carried a gridiron in my pocket if I had had one. Here's another. You had not a gridiron, of course. Nor a pocket, either. But did you eat the trout all alone? Without bread, I mean, or anything? No, we took bread and salt, and pepper and butter, and a few such things. There were generally a lot of us. Or if only two or three, we could manage that. The butter was the worst thing to accomplish. Here's another. Such beauties, said Diana. Well, Mr. Knowlton, if you get too hungry, we'll cook you one at home, you know. Will you? said he. I wish we had salt and bread here. I should like to show you how wood cookery goes, though. But I'll tell you. We'll get Mrs. Starling to let us have it out in the meadow. That won't be bad. Diana thought of her mother's utter astonishment and disapprobation at such a proposal. And there was silence again for a few minutes, while the line hung motionless over the pool, and Diana's eyes watched it movelessly, and the liquid sweetness of the water's talk with the stones was heard, as one hears things when the senses are strung to double keenness. Diana heard it, at least, and listened to something in it she had never perceived before, something not only sweet and liquid and musical, but in some odd sense admonitory. What did it say? Diana hardly questioned, but yet she heard. My peace never changes, my song never dies. Listen or not listen, it is all the same. You may be in twenty moods in a year. In my depth of content I flow on forever. A slight rustling of leaves, a slight crackling of stems or branches, brought the eyes of both watchers in another direction. And before they could hear a footfall, they saw, above them on the course of the brook, a figure of a man coming towards them and Diana knew it was the minister. Swiftly and lightly he came swinging himself along, bounding over obstacles, with a short foot and a strong hand, till presently he stood beside them. Just then Mr. Knowlton's line was swung up with another trout. Diana introduced the gentlemen to each other. "'Fishing?' said the minister. "'We have got all there are in this place, I'm thinking,' said Knowlton, shutting up his rod. "'You had not two minutes ago,' said the other." "'What do you judge from? "'It doesn't do to be so easily discouraged as that.' "'Discouraged?' said Knowlton. "'Not exactly. "'Let us see. Four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight out of this little one pool, Mr. Masters. "'Do you think there are any more?' "'I always get all I can out of a thing,' said the minister. "'And his very cheery tone, as well as his very quiet manner, "'seemed to say he was in the habit of getting a good deal out of everything.' "'I don't know about that,' answered the young officer, in another tone. "'Doesn't always pay. "'To stay too long at one pool of a brook, for instance. "'The brook has other pools, I suppose.' "'I suppose it has,' said the minister, "'with a manner which would have puzzled any but one that knew him, "'to tell whether he were in jest or earnest. 
I suppose it has, but you may not find them, or by the time you do you may have lost your bait, or you may be tired of fishing, or it may be time to go home. I am never tired, said Knowlton, springing up, and I have got a guide that will not let me miss my way. You are fortunate, said the other, and I will not occupy your time. Good afternoon. I shall hope to see more of you. With a warm grasp of the young officer's hand, and lifting his hat to Diana, the minister went on his way. Diana looked after him, wondering why he had not shaken hands with her, too. It was something she was a little sorry to miss. Who is that? Knowlton asked. Mr. Masters? He's our minister. What sort of a chap is he? Not like all the rest of them. How are all the rest of them? Diana asked. I declare I don't know, said Knowlton. If I was to tell the truth, I should say they puzzle all my wits. See em in one place, and hear em, and you would say they thought all the business of this world was of no account, nor the pleasure of it either. See em anywhere else, and they are just as much of this world as you are, or as I am, I mean. They change as fast as a chameleon. In the light that comes through a church window, now, they'll be blue enough, and make you think blue's the only wear, or black. But once outside, and they like the color that comes through a glass of wine, or anything else that's jolly. One thing or the other they don't mean. That's plain. Which do you think they don't mean? said Diana. Well, they're two or three hours in church, and the rest of the week outside. I believe what they say the rest of the time. I don't think Mr. Masters is like that. What is he like, then? I think he means exactly what he says. Exactly, said the young officer, laughing. But which part of the time, you know? All times. I think he means just the same thing always. Must see more of him, said Knowlton. You like him, then, Miss Starling. Diana did like him, and it was quite her way to say what she thought. Yet she did not say it. She had an undefined, shadowy impression that the hearing would not be grateful to her companion. Her reply was a very inconclusive remark, that she had not seen much of Mr. Masters, and an inquiry where Mr. Knowlton meant to fish next. So the brook had them without interruption the rest of the time. They crept up the ravine, under the hemlock branches and oak boughs, picking their way along the rocky banks, catching one or two more trout, and finding an unending supply of things to talk about, while the air grew more delicious as the day dipped towards evening, and the light flashed from the upper treetops more clear and sparkling as the rays came more slant, and the brook's running commentary on what was going on, like so many other commentaries, was heard and not heeded, until the shadows deepening in the dell warned them it was time to seek the lower grounds and open fields again, which they did, much more swiftly than the ascent of the brook had been made, in great spirits on both sides, though with a thought on Diana's part how her mother would receive the fish and the young officer's proposition. Mrs. Starling was standing at the back door of the kitchen as they came up to it. I should think, Diana, you knew enough to remember that we don't take visitors in at this end of the house, was her opening remark. How about fish? inquired Mr. Knowlton, bringing forward his basket. What are you going to do with them? asked Mrs. Starling, standing in the door, as if she meant he should not come in. We are going to eat them, with your leave, ma'am, and by your help, and first we are going to cook them. Who? Miss Starling and myself. I have promised to show her a thing. May I ask for the loan of a match? A match, echoed Mrs. Starling. Or two, added Mr. Knowlton, with an indescribable twinkle in his eye. 
indescribable, because there was nothing contrary to good breeding in it. All the more, Diana felt the sense of fun it expressed, and hastened to change the scene, and put an end to the colloquy. She threw down her bonnet, and went for a handful of sticks. Mr. Knowlton had got his match by this time. Mrs. Starling stood astonished and scornful. "'Will this be wood enough?' Diana asked. Mr. Knowlton replied by taking the sticks out of her hand, and led the way into the meadow. Diana followed, very quiet and flushed. He had not said a word, yet the manner of that little action had a whole small volume in it. "'Nobody else ever cared whether I had sticks in my hands or not,' thought Diana, and she flushed more and more. She turned her face away from the bright west, which threw too much illumination on it, and looked down into the brook. The brook's song sounded now unheard. It was on the border of the brook that Lieutenant Knowlton made his fire. He was in a very jubilant sort of mood. The fire was made, and the fish were washed, and Diana stood by the column of smoke in the meadow and looked on, as still as a mouse. And Mrs. Starling stood in the door of the lean-to and looked on, too, from a distance. And if she was still, it was because she had no one near, just then, to whom it was safe to open her mind. The beauty of the picture was all lost upon her. The shorn meadow, the soft column of ascending smoke colored in dainty hues from the glowing western sky, the two figures moving about it. "'Now, Miss Diana,' said the young officer, "'if we had a little salt, and a dish, I am afraid to go and ask Mrs. Starling for them.' "'Perhaps so was she, but Diana went, and got them without asking. She smiled at the dishing of the trout. It was so cleverly done.' Then she was requested to sprinkle salt on them herself, and then, with a satisfied air, which somehow called up a flush in Diana's cheeks again, Mr. Knowlton marched off to the house with a dish in his hands. Mrs. Starling had given her farm laborers their supper, and was clearing away relics from the board. She made no move of welcome or hospitable invitation, but Diana hastened to remove the traces of disorder, and set clean plates and cups, and bring fresh butter and bread, and make fresh tea. How very pleasant, and how extremely unpleasant it was altogether. "'Mother,' she said, when all was ready, "'won't you come and taste Mr. Knowlton's fish?' "'I guess I know how fish taste. "'I haven't eaten the trout of that brook all my life without.' "'But you don't know my cookery,' said Mr. Knowlton. "'That's something new.' "'I don't see the sense of doing things in an outlandish way, "'when you have no need to. "'Nor I don't see why men should cook, as long as there's women about.' "'What is outlandish?' inquired Mr. Knowlton. "'What you've been doing, I should say.' "'Come and try my cookery, Mrs. Starling. "'You will never say anything against men in that capacity again.' "'I never say anything against men anyhow, "'only against men cooking, and that ain't natural.' "'It comes quite natural to me,' said the young officer. "'Only taste my trout, Mrs. Starling, "'and you will be quite reconciled to me again.' "'I ain't quarreling with nobody, fur's I know,' said Mrs. Starling. "'but I've had my supper.' "'Well, we haven't had ours,' said the young man, "'and he set himself not only to supply that deficiency in his own case, "'but to secure that Diana should enjoy, and eat hers, in spite of all hindrances. "'He saw that she was woefully annoyed by her mother's manner. "'It brought out his own more in contrast than perhaps otherwise would have been. "'He helped her, he coaxed her, he praised the trout and the tea, and the bread and the butter.' He peppered and salted anew, when he thought it necessary, on her plate, and he talked and told stories, and laughed and made her laugh, till even Mrs. Starling, moving about in the pantry, 
moved softly, and set down the dishes carefully, that she too might hear. Diana sometimes knew that she did so, at other times was fain to forget everything but the glamour of the moment. Trout were disposed of at last, however, and the remainder was cold. Bread and butter had done its duty, and Mr. Knowlton rose from table. His adieus were gay, quite unaffected by Mrs. Starling's determined holding aloof, and involuntarily Diana stood by the table where she could look out of the window, till she had seen him mount into his wagon and go off. "'Have you got through?' said Mrs. Starling. "'Supper?' said Diana, starting. "'Yes, mother.' "'Then perhaps I can have a chance now. "'Do you think there is anything in the world to do? "'Or is it all done up, in the world you have got into?' "'Diana began clearing away the relics of the trout supper, "'in silence and with all haste. "'That ain't all,' said Mrs. Starling. "'The house don't stand still for nobody, "'nor the world, nor things generally. "'The sponge has got to be set for the bread, "'and there's the beans, Diana. "'Tomorrow's the day for the beans, "'and they ain't looked over yet, nor put in soak.' "'and you'd better get out some codfish and put that on the stove. "'I don't know what to have for breakfast if I don't have that. "'You'd best go and get off your dress first thing. "'That's my counsel to ye, and save washing that to-morrow.' "'Diana went into no reasoning, on that subject or any other. "'But she managed to do all that was demanded of her, "'without changing her dress, and yet without damaging its fresh neatness. "'In silence, and in an uncomfortable mute antagonism, which each one felt in every movement of the other. Odd it is, that when words for any reason are restrained, the feeling supposed to be kept back manifests itself in the turn of the shoulders, and the set of the head, in the putting down of the foot, or the raising of the hand, nay, in the harmless movements of pans and kettles. The work was done, however, punctually, as always in that house, though Diana's feeling of mingled resentment and shame grew as the evening wore on. She was glad when the last pan was lifted for the last time. The key turned in the lock of the door of the lean-to, and she and her mother moved into the other part of the house, preparatory to seeking their several rooms. But Mrs. Starling had not done her work yet. "'When's that young man coming again?' she asked abruptly, at the foot of the stairs, stopping to trim the wick of her candle, and looking into the light without winking. "'I don't know,' Diana faltered. "'I don't know that he is ever coming again.' "'Don't expect him either, don't you?' "'I think it would be odd if he didn't,' said Diana bravely, after a moment's hesitation. "'Odd. Why?' Diana hesitated longer this time, and the words did not come for her waiting. "'Why odd?' repeated Mrs. Starling sharply. "'When people seem to like a place, they are apt to come again,' said Diana, flushing a little. "'Seem to,' said Mrs. Starling. "'Now, Diana, I have just this one thing to say.' "'Don't you go and give that young fellow no encouragement.' "'Encouragement, mother,' repeated Diana. "'Yes, encouragement. Don't you give him any. "'Mind my words, cause if you do, I won't.' "'But, mother,' said Diana, "'what is there to encourage? "'I could not help going to show the brook to him to-day.' "'You couldn't?' said Mrs. Starling, beginning to mount the stairs. "'Well, it is good to practice. "'Supposin' he asks you to let him show you the Mississippi, "'or the Pacific Ocean.' "'Couldn't you help that?' "'Mother, I am ashamed,' said poor Diana. "'Just think. He is educated, and has every advantage, "'and is an officer in the United States Army now. "'And what am I?' "'Worth three dozen of him,' said Mrs. Starling decidedly. "'He wouldn't think so, mother, nor anybody else but you.' "'Well, I think so, mind, and that's enough. 
I ain't a-goin' to give you to him, not if he was fifty officers in the United States Army. So keep my words, Diana, and mind what I say. I never will give you to him, nor to any other man that calls himself a soldier, and looks down upon folks that are better than he is. I won't let you marry him, so don't you go and tell him you will. He won't ask me, mother. You make me ashamed, said Diana, with her cheeks burning. But I am sure that he does not look down upon me. "'Nobody shall marry you that sets himself up above me,' said Mrs. Starling, as she closed her door. "'Mind!' And Diana went into her own room, and shut her door, and sat down to breathe. "'Suppose he should ask you to let him show you the Mississippi or the Pacific.' And the hot flush rushed over her, and she hid her face, as if even from herself. "'He will not, but what if he should?' Mrs. Starling had raised the question— Diana, in very maidenly shame, tried to beat it down and stamp the life out of it, but that was more than she could do. End of chapter 6